Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Everybody's always looking for the next economic success story. In the 1960s and 70s, uh, that was supposed to be Brazil. At other times, it's been the Ivory Coast, Mexico, Kenya, Venezuela, and a number of other countries that have turned out to have less than stellar performances. Instead, a sometimes surprising list of countries in the past couple of decades have pulled ahead, including Georgia, India, Peru, and Estonia, for example. Professional economists and investors, political scientists, and all sorts of pundits are not particularly good at predicting success. For that matter, uh, many are not even good at looking back and explaining why some countries have succeeded and why some have failed. The inability to predict the future um, is understandable, since uh, that depends on all sorts of complex factors and also the very frequent arbitrary decisions of politicians. Uh, there is, however, such a thing as detecting patterns of development and causes for growth. We at the Cato Institute have done quite a bit of work with our friends and colleagues at the Fraser Institute in Canada on the importance of economic freedom in uh, establishing prosperity. And while we publish an index of economic freedom uh, around the world that does establish strong empirical uh, relationships uh, with human progress, that index by itself cannot uh, tell you why uh, some countries are more likely to reform or uh, why some will stick to building the types of sound institutions that lead to growth. To do that requires a lot more detail about a particular country's circumstances and an eye for relevant information. I'm pleased that uh, today we have Ruchir, Ruchir Sharma, the author uh, of Breakout Nations in Pursuit of the Next Economic Miracles, who, uh, who has developed precisely those skills that combine a good sense of what is a proper policy environment with keen observation about what's going on inside of a country in terms of politics, social attitudes, economic trends, and other factors that can determine where, where a country is heading. His book is a useful guide to understanding uh, the growth potential of countries around the world and contains much insight and some unexpected conclusions. Warsaw's business culture, for example, is fundamentally different than that of Moscow's. Vietnam is not, in fact, following in the footsteps of China, as many people uh, believe. Business cartels explain why Mexico's uh, uh, markets are hot, stock market is hot, but its economy is not, and the future may look brighter than many people think in the United States and Germany. Breakout Nations is a reminder that understanding the development process requires a lot of judgment about which intelli intelligent people can disagree, and that development cannot be understood by taking a technocratic approach. All the more reason uh, why we should be skeptical of grand schemes coming out of aid agencies or other uh, sources claiming to have the answers to the, the world's very diverse set of nations. Fortunately, Rachir Sharma doesn't suffer from a messianic approach. He just offers rules of the road, which I think are very useful in the book. So let me introduce you uh, to him and allow you to judge for yourself how sound his evaluations are. Uh, Rachir Sharma is the head of global emerging markets 
and of Global Macro at Morgan Stanley Investment uh, Management. He is a columnist at Newsweek and writes uh, for publications like the Wall Street Journal and other uh, leading newspapers around the world. And he is a regular contributor to the Economic Times in India and has been writing um, financial columns since the early 1990s. Please help me welcome Ruchir Sharma. All right, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here at this institute. I'm told that this is the first time in this auditorium as well. Uh, so that's a coming for you at least. Okay. <laughs> so it's a real delight to be here. Um, as uh, you mentioned that I've been uh, an investor for, the, for nearly two decades now in the developing world. I try and spe uh, spend about one week each month in some country uh, sort of obsessing about it because I find that at least for me, there's no substitute uh, than to be on the ground in some, in some country and to meet with all the people there, the various players from the uh, top government officials to corporate CEOs to uh, local investors. And uh, that's what I've done for nearly two decades now and try and sort of form a view on each country on a continuous basis. Um, so, um, but I've been a writer for longer than I've been an investor. I started writing back in 1991, uh, where I started out uh, back in India. And those days when I first started out to write, there was very little interest in India about what's happening in the rest of the global economy. Um, and I had this idea back then about writing a column exactly based on that. I was pretty young when I started out, but precisely because nobody else was interested in talking about the global economy, I managed to squeeze my sort of column in, uh, in large part due to Swami's uh, negligence. So, uh, because he was the editor those days back at the, back at the Economic Times. Uh, so that's how like I, I started out uh, writing then. And then finally, uh, I, after nearly two decades of writing, I said, I've got to write my own book. And that's what uh, this effort led to. So I spent much of last year putting together all my thoughts about various emerging markets and have tried to write something in the form of an economic travelogue, which is sort of uh, impressionist views of each uh, emerging market. But a lot of it is also based, obviously, on some sort of, uh, economic uh, theories and observations as have gone around those countries. Now, what got me to write this book is, is, is partly like a big idea that you know, when you want to write a book, I always sort of felt that you need a big idea behind it. And the big idea that sort of struck me was uh, in late 2010 in terms of what's going on. And that I'd been sort of investing in emerging markets for nearly two decades and I'd seen a lot of cycles. I'd seen this phase where we started out um, when I first started investing in emerging markets, there was a boom on in the mid-1990s. And then we had a series of crises after that, where emerging markets between 1994 and 2002 were considered the problem child of the world economy. Uh, those crises included the East Asian financial crisis, the Russian default, uh, the Argentine crisis to capital in 2001. And then uh, it all started with Mexico in late 1994. So that was the sort of history we went uh, through. And then there was this magical period from 2003 onwards where every single developing country did well, um, from 2003 to 2008. 
And this is captured in a, in a couple of statistics. <clears throat> that between 2003 and 2008, the average growth rate of the developing world was 7.5%. And just to, uh, and the global economy in recorded history had never gone through such a period where so many emerging markets grew in such a synchronous manner. So in the growth rate of emerging markets in the 1980s and 1990s used to be about 3.5% or so. And the long-term growth rate of emerging markets in post-war history was about 5%. And we went through this period from 03 to 08, where the average growth rate was 7.5%. And this rising tide of uh, countries doing well um, left no country uh, in its wake. In 2007, the peak year of the boom of the 180-odd economies tracked by the IMF, only three economies contracted. And those were Fiji, Congo and Zimbabwe, who cares, right? And the, and, the, and the history otherwise is, the history otherwise is that in any particular year, if you look back, typically about 20% of economies report a negative GDP growth rate in any, in any year on average, around 20%. And only about one third of economies are able to grow at above 5%. So that's the spread in terms of what we got. 2007, the peak year of the boom, we had only three economies out of 183, which uh, reported a negative GDP growth rate. And we had more than 50% of the world's economies growing at above 5%. So this was really a very exceptional period. But the question was, what caused this exceptional period? Uh, and then it led to, like, obviously, a lot of myths about uh, the history of economic development. What caused this exceptional period, according to me, were two to three special factors. One was the fact that these economies were catching up after a very poor performance in 1980s and 1990s. And because of the poor performance, a lot of the balance sheets had been cleaned up in these economies. In terms of the macroeconomic finances had been put in order from Indonesia to Russia. They you know, sort of uh, paid down their debt. And uh, a lot of improvements took place on the macroeconomic front because they had their backs to the wall, which is typically when emerging markets tend to reform. So after the crisis period, these economies reformed considerably. And so they were catching up. And the second most important point, which I think is really underestimated, but we are seeing, is that as we know that in the Western world, US, Europe, there was a huge increase in financial leverage and in uh, overall indebtedness. And a lot of that liquidity flew to emerging markets as well. So we have analyzed about how a lot of that liquidity helped create the, uh, the housing bubble in the US or other sort of problems in Europe in terms of the housing booms in so many southern and peripheral European countries. But it also led to a big flight of capital to emerging markets and, and lowered their risk uh, 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 returns in terms of you know, what it takes, uh, the cost of capital rather. And the very strong demand in the US helped you know, trigger a big export boom. So this combination of factors of catching up from a very bad period in the 1980s and 1990s, abundant global liquidity, which lowered the cost of capital, and also the fact that the uh, US consumer was reasonably strong in a big source of, uh, of exports from emerging markets, helped lift the growth rates of emerging markets to these exceptionally high levels from the 03 to 08 period. Now, uh, like after the crisis, uh, uh, happened in 2008-2009, some of these emerging markets were able to use uh, some of their unspent uh, bullets to try and keep demand 
going for a while. So like whether it was India, China, there was a lot of stimulus that was put into the pipeline to try and keep demand going. But what's happening now is that many of these countries are experiencing their own uh, difficulties and growth rates across emerging markets are slowing down quite a bit. And I think that this is what is setting the stage for a very different kind of outcome now uh, in this decade. That I think we are reverting to the old emerging market experience, which is that there, are, there will be some stars, but there'll be some flops as well. This is not going to be the exceptional period we had last decade where every single emerging market recorded high growth rates on the back of easy liquidity. That rising tide of global liquidity is no longer there to lift every single emerging market now. And, and I think that what we need to do here is to start distinguishing again. The long history of economic development is that there are more flops than stars. Failure rather than success is the rule in economic uh, development. So if you look at the economy today, the global economy of the 180 odd economies, only 35 are developed economies. Everyone else is emerging uh, because they've sort of spent this period, as you mentioned at the outset, where you have one good decade for any particular economy or region, and then that sort of uh, economy falters because they fritter away the gains which come from that boom or they stop reforming. And reforms only take place in societies often when they have their backs to the wall. So that's what typically tends to happen and development ends up being a process that I refer to as a game of snakes and ladders, which is that you sort of go up some, you get bitten by a snake, you come back down, you start all over again. Some get lucky, they find the ladder and are able to leapfrog and make it to the top. But the game of extrapolation doesn't happen, which is that you go from the bottom to the top in a straight line. But that's exactly the kind of belief I think that got built over the past decade because so many emerging markets did well. And that was captured in the fact that these acronyms became very popular. The most popular of them, of course, was BRIC. Uh, but you know, like, why did BRIC become so popular? Because BRIC captured the imagination as it, as it was the four largest economies in the world, uh, sorry, in the developing world. And, and because every single emerging market was doing well, it seemed uh, uh, BRIC got the maximum spotlight on them because they were the largest economies. And they were all sort of you know, growing above their historical averages. So it seemed that something special was going on. But this fad for acronyms went on and on. After BRIC, we had something called the N11. And the most ridiculous one that I heard by the end of the decade was something called CIVITS, right? which is some cat uh, uh, name, et cetera. And the only reason that it, it was formed was because it sounds good with the countries which they threw into the mix included Colombia, Indonesia, Vietnam, Egypt, I mean, all countries that have nothing to do with each other. But you just package it well, you get a good marketing term and you throw it. And these things worked because every single emerging market was doing well. So no, no matter what acronym you created, it sounded like to be sort of, you know, very uh, sexy because like everything was flying. So that's what was going on by the end of the last decade. Now, like I'm an emerging market investor. My interest is, is to sort of go out there and sell emerging markets, right? And, and, and a lot of people who are willing to buy this argument that all because you are, you know, like you're an emerging market, you're bound to grow faster. That's where the opportunity lies. So put more capital out there, diversify that way. And that's your sort of uh, uh, road to becoming rich. But I find that, uh, that as, as someone who is sort of invested for many years with a contrarian bent of mind, that you don't go with the herd, that you basically distinguish and you see what's the flaw in the conventional argument all the time. 
And there are a couple of anecdotes which took place in late 2010, which is what told me that this trend has gone too far. And that this trend also will go down the way that many other trends have gone, which is that they become very popular for one decade and then rarely continue to be popular in the subsequent decade. So in the 1990s, the big fad was technology. 1980s, the big fad was how Japan's going to rule the world. In 1970s, the big fad had to do with all the resource and inflation plays. Inflation was the thing that we all were concerned about. In the 1960s, it was all about the US and the Nifty 50, as we called it here. So every decade, there's some fad which captures the imagination of people, whether it's politicians or investors. And, and, and by the time that everyone buys into it, that fad you know, tends to sort of run out. So there were a couple of anecdotes which happened in late 2010. What were they? Well, one was back, you know, like I'd gone back to India, uh, as I frequently do for one of my visits. And I was invited to one of these fancy parties on the fringes of Delhi. Like they call these farmhouse parties. Like the farmers of Delhi have long left, but these farmhouses, because they got these landed concession rates, still exist out there for, you know, for uh, for many of the rich to have their fancy sort of homes out there. These sprawling mansions, which have all sorts of fancy features, you know, uh, and the one that I went to for this party in late 2010 had a railroad running around it uh, as part of the extravagance. And and you enter there and the and you get chefs from all over the world, which are sort of you know, preparing the food. And it's a complete you know, like atmosphere of decadence. So here I was at this party in late 2010, and I got into a conversation with this young 25-year-old. He was a typical Delhi type, you know, wearing a tight black T-shirt, hair spiked, gelled. And he was the son of, you know, what they call in Delhi to be like an exporter, you know, like, you know, like a guy who's making uh, uh, some money on the quick. And so like this guy, you know, like had only sort of worked with his dad, 25. He sort of chats with me for a bit and then susses me out and very quickly sort of, you know, figures out that I'm like a global investor who's back in India looking for opportunities, or at least that's what he wants to believe in. And he goes to me, you know, shrugs his shoulder and goes, where else will the money go? You know, and such overconfidence. That, you know, that, 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 that the West is in decline, the money's got to come here. Where else is it going to go? And, and he was parroting to me not, not only what was his belief, but what I think a lot of us came to believe, that you know, like in this myth that the West is in decline and the money is bound to flow to these you know, like places, and that's where it's got to go. This, along with another anecdote that happened to me back in Moscow shortly thereafter, really sowed the seeds for this book and this idea. Uh, about you know uh, about the coming decade. The other anecdote, which uh, is that I went to Moscow. Uh, there was a conference being organized out there, um, and the um, uh, prime minister, then Putin, wanted somebody to present to him at the conference about the state of affairs in in Russia. And then, so the conference organizers and and Putin's office asked me whether I'd make that presentation. I said, fine, I'll do it. So, I mean, there I was making this presentation to Putin, and I did not know this was going to be such a big deal because although I'd met him before, but I mean, here the, like it was being televised, the cameras were on and stuff like that at this conference, and I was presenting like to Putin. And I gave a pretty blunt assessment about Russia, about how I was optimistic on Russia a decade ago when things were completely chaotic and values were cheap in Russia and people hated it. And now a decade later, the per capita income of Russia was $12,000. And, and that Russia basically was regressing rather than progressing, uh, that you know, just being reliant on oil and ga gas is not enough. A rich country makes rich goods. If Russia wants to get rich, it better you know, get some sort of a manufacturing sector going or some you know, like new, new businesses going, and it can't have such a poor track record of doing what it is. So from an investor, it was a pretty blunt assessment of how Russia was doing. 
And, and you know, Putin was, of course, being very courteous. He and I were on the stage. He was there taking notes down as if he was actually listening and stuff. But the next day, I, I found out in what exactly this was all about because the entire Russian media went after me. You know, a lot of it is obviously state-controlled. And their sort of take was that, you know, like, who needs your money? You know, that uh, this was the peak of the boom in 2010 that, you know, like, you know, uh, like hell with all your advice, who really needs your money? And and this sort of also showed me how the attitude had changed as far as Russia was concerned, a country that I'd, I'd visited uh, uh, um, quite frequently over the years. And uh, right thereafter, there was a client conference that we had organized for our clients. And in that client conference, uh, uh, we had called the former president, George Bush, to be the guest speaker. And I was having a fireside chat with him in that format, like an interview for the audience. So I asked him that, you know, what are you, uh, that, that what is it that you saw in Putin? You know, where he uh, commented so sort of famously like a decade ago that, that you, you know, like you looked him in the eye and you saw a friend. I said, what is it that you saw him and do you still hold that belief? And he also told me something which sort of mirrored uh, um, my own sort of change in, uh, in Russia. And uh, like he said how the attitude of Putin had changed. He was saying that when Putin would first come to uh, the White House uh, back in the early 2000s, Putin would talk about his debt and how he's paying down his debt and, and what all he is doing and stuff. And, he's, and he says that he remembers in like one of those visits, uh, uh, Bush introduced him to his dog, uh, uh, Barney or whatever. And so, you know, you know, Putin looked at it, you know, didn't really react much to it. He says that at the, at the peak of the boom in 2007 or so, he went to Moscow and Putin to, took him to his uh, dacha. And by then, you know, Putin's confidence was huge. He was really believing that 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 you know Russia had truly reemerged because of the massive boom that uh, Russia had enjoyed, and so he said that he that that uh, you know like uh, Putin's questions then were much more about needling Bush about the mortgage-backed securities and other debt, etc., which which the U.S. Uh, had, and then like out of the blue, you know, like Putin goes to Bush that you want to meet my dog, so like Bush says, okay, I, you know, let's meet your dog. So like out comes, you know, like Putin's dog, this big dog, and sort of, you know, Putin says to Bush, referring to his older meeting, see, bigger, better, stronger, right? So this was the massive change in attitude which had taken place as far as this is concerned. Now, all this to me was telling me about how seriously the attitudes had changed in emerging markets, that, when, that a, a decade ago when we had to sell emerging markets, nobody was willing to listen to us, when valuations were really cheap, and 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 the whole you know, sort of uh, place appeared to be a real mess. And now all of a sudden, a decade later, any sort of country with an emerging market tag had a lot of hype around it. So that's when I decided I'm going to write this book. And the idea of the book really was that, uh, is that if you look at economic history, you've got to sort of distinguish. Emerging markets are now nearly 40% of the global economy. You cannot treat them as a homogeneous entity. Uh, the... Uh, differences are incredible. You've got countries in Africa with a per capita income of less than $1,000. You've got large economies like India with a per capita income of $1,500. Then you've got the likes of Korea with a per capita income of $20,000 plus. In the middle, you've got a whole bunch of countries like Brazil, Mexico, Turkey, Russia with a per capita income of ten dollars to $12,000. And even China, things have changed uh, dramatically. The China's per capita income level now is around $6,000. And if you look at economic history, typically when countries get to that sort of per capita income level, you have to adjust for like obviously exchange rate uh, valuations. 
growth tends to slow down. That in China's case, that this that China today is exactly where Japan was in the 1970s in terms of its stage of economic development, or where Korea and Taiwan were subsequently in the 1980s and 1990s. And now these are the gold medalists of growth. These are countries that have gone on to successfully uh, industrialize themselves. But even these gold medalists of growth ended up slowing down at that sort of per capita income level. And I think that that's, to me, like something which is happening in China as we speak. And yet the uh, uh, anchoring bias is such that the moment you speak to people that China's economy may grow at less than 8%, there's a lot of nervousness out there. Because even the IMF projects that the next five years, China's growth rate will be uh, more than 8%. And you got uh, and the sort of uh, sociological game in town, which I find very worrying, is this thing about when China is going to overtake the U.S. That you know, like there are all sorts of arguments, you know, which are going on around there in terms of that. Uh, that will it be 2018? Will it be 2021? Uh, and they're all based on the straight line extrapolation: eight percent GDP growth, endlessly like into the future, currency will appreciate a bit. So in dollar terms, it's only a matter of time that uh, that. China overtakes the uh, the U.S. economy, and this is completely ignoring the fact that we've gone through this entire period uh, in economic history, where often at this stage of economic development things get much tougher. Uh, I'm not even talking about the middle income trap, which is a separate concept and a much debated concept. I'm just talking about a middle income deceleration. But I think that the world is not prepared for some of this, especially some of the commodity exporting countries, because the commodity exporting countries now have again come to believe that we are in some sort of massive commodity super cycle. We are back to the, you know, like in these Malthusian arguments about how the world is running out of everything from oil to wheat to corn, uh, because demand is growing a lot, supply is not keeping pace. And yet, if you look at the 200-year history of commodities, it's a, it's a consistent pattern. One decade up, two decades down. And we've just had that one decade up. And the reason for this is that even though demand has increased continuously over time, the, the uh, human ingenuity in terms of innovation and other factors in terms of lowering the cost of extraction or, and other substitutes have brought down the cost of uh, production and therefore commodity prices over time. So in fact, even in our asset allocation mixes, I tell people that commodities historically are the worst performing asset class compared to stocks or bonds. This is the worst performing asset class. And it should be. Because why should people sort of make too much money for essentially digging dirt out of the ground. And that's exactly what I think the commodity business is. And yet the sociological signs of excess are there. I was looking at this thing that a decade ago, the number of billionaires who came from the tech sector represented about one third of the total number of billionaires in the world. Today, the number of billionaires coming from the commodity sector are one third of the total billionaires in the world. Right, so this is a massive price move which has inflated the fortunes and market capitalization of a lot of uh, uh, billionaires out there. So as I sort of go around this world in this, uh, in this economic travelogue, I try and come up with some rules of the road, because I think that the IMF, World Bank, and other sort of academics have done a pretty good job of coming up with, you know, like, the, uh, the, like all, the, all the academic stuff, which is in terms of that quality of institutions matter, education matters, and, and uh, rule of law matters. But sometimes you also need, uh, as investors, we pay a a lot of attention to touchy-feely stuff. Like one thing that I come up in the book is something called a Four Seasons Index. And luckily, you know, when we get to travel the world, we get to stay in the Four Seasons hotels or in similar luxury hotels. And often when you look at the prices of these hotels, they tell you whether a country is competitive for doing business or not. 
And I find it shocking that when you get to like Brazil or Russia, you pay for high-end room rates there a thousand dollars a night. And you know, like in places in like East Asia, which have uh, you know sort of figured the currency game out much better, whether it's China or whether it's Korea, or the likes of Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Thailand, Philippines, you pay about two to three hundred dollars a night for a similar hotel room and stuff. And and to me, this is really what the entire problem in like Brazil is that the currency has appreciated massively because of the commodity boom and the fact that the interest rates are relatively high, leading to a huge amount of capital, but the rest of the economy is getting hollowed out. So nobody is really producing much in Brazil. They're running a current account deficit, even though they, uh, they have a commodity boom to back them up. And I shudder to think what's going to happen to them if commodity prices fall as I anticipate they will in the coming few years. So I think that could, you know, that could be a serious problem for the likes of Brazil. Same thing for Russia. That Russia, when I used to go there like a decade ago, the price of oil was $25 a barrel. And they used to be paranoid that what if this falls to $15 a barrel? What will happen to us again? Because they just suffered from, what, uh, from that sort of experience in the, in the late 1990s. Today, Russia cannot balance its budget at an oil price on Brent of even $110 a barrel. So these things just get embedded, and, and, and that's, what the, uh, that's where the problems arise. And yet, uh, the countries that I feel a bit more optimistic are, are countries where I you know, still feel, or countries that I feel which are coming back from the abyss, or countries that are reforming because they had their back to the wall or they need to attract capital. You want to be with those countries. Like in one you know, sort of example, which I find that I get a lot of pushback from, is Philippines. Now, Philippines, as we know, used to be the star of Asia in the 1960s. It was the second richest country in Asia. And, and because of political and economic turmoil since, it, it was a constant laggard. You know? And this is the problem with long-term forecasting as well. The 1960s, the major institutions in the world said that the, that the next East Asian tigers would be Philippines, Burma, and Sri Lanka. And the ADB set up their office in Manila expecting that to happen. And, and so like we, we went through this entire period, but I, but I began to turn in Philippines because two years ago when I would go to Philippines, I would see there's a lot of sort of angst there in society that they have been passed by every single East Asian country in terms of their per capita income. And, and for them, the final nail in the coffin was when uh, Indonesia also surpassed them to be a richer country than, than they were. So I, and then you could f find out that they were trying to throw up a leader out there like who would be more focused on economic reform and in delivering an, uh, some sort of an investment cycle again. And that's what I, you know, makes me a bit more positive on Philippines. But what I try and sort of say here is that for me, the destination is more important, uh, is not as important as the journey. The journey is more important. That you've got to figure out the rules of the road and you need to be flexible. You, you cannot get locked into views for too long. And the other thing which I have a lot of contempt for is long-term forecasting. You know, like, I mean, like I, as I say in the book, that the old rule of forecasting used to be that you make as many forecasts as possible and you remind people when you're right. To me, the new rule of forecasting now is that you, that you forecast so far out in the future that neither you nor I will know, you know whether we were right. <laughs> you know, so I, you know, like, for example, you know, like I hate to say that, I mean, other books are written about, about, about you know, what will happen to the world in 2030, what will happen to the world in 2050. I mean, who cares? Who's going to be around to sort of figure that out? And I'd love, you know, like, I think this is true for like most of us who live in a practical world, which is that I wish I could find a client who tell me I'll come and check your performance in 2030. I wish, you know, like politicians would sort of, you know, say that, listen, you elect me in, in 2030 if I deliver till then. I mean, the world just doesn't work on those parameters. 
and and this entire business, you know, like the, like these books, you know, which do well, which I find staggering that you know, like why nations fail uh, because something happened in the year fourteen hundred or something happened in the year fifteen hundred. So therefore, that is a sort of good guide for us to tell us what will happen, you know, twenty years from now. You know, I mean, again, I mean, for me, no practical value. So what I've tried to do here is to try and sort of uh, keep the uh, horizon to a practical one, which I think is three to five years maximum, like a decade, and to be flexible about it. I think that's the problem with acronyms. I see some of my sort of uh, counterparts and other firms twisting and turning all the time, uh, trying to, you know, like defend brick, uh, you know, because, and they'll defend Russia as to how, et cetera, like it should be, because they have to, they're wedded to an acronym now. And so it's very hard to drop one because it doesn't sound as cool anymore. So, like, I mean, like you get, you know, completely wedded into the, into the stuff. Whereas the whole concept of breakout nations, which I try and sort of put out here, is that is that you got to sort of figure out which countries are going to exceed expectations and which ones are will disappoint and be flexible about it. You know, have some rules of the road that as you travel the world, some of them can be easy rules like the Four Seasons Index. Some of them, you know, like involved uh, assessing as to which countries are willing, I mean, have their back to the wall and are willing to reform. Uh, some of them, you know, are like political rules, like one thing which I come up with, which, which is, I, I know, a bit of a controversial sort of argument with some of the, you know, like obviously uh, free thinking people haven't liked, but I've tried to be objective, is that it does not matter what's your economic system, which is that I looked at about all the high growth cases in the world over the past three decades and figured out that what was the political regime that was backing them? Was it an authoritarian one or a democratic one? And I found of the 124 high growth cases I looked at, it was 50-50. It just didn't matter as to what was the system backing it. So when someone, you know, like tells me starry-eyed about how good the Chinese model is because it's a command and control system, I said, yeah, but for every command and control system that works, I can show you one that does not. And the biggest disappointment in the last four to five years for me has been Vietnam, uh, you know, which had, you know, which was sort of heralded as the next China of that region and had greatness thrust upon it prematurely. And yet uh, Vietnam, you know, tried to copy everything that China was doing and has, and has come up with results which are really disappointing from double-digit inflation on a persistent <clears throat> basis and economic growth that is now falling very rapidly from the highs that they had three to four years ago. So what you need is flexibility. You need some sort of rules about, you know, what will work and what will not. And I think that's the like, concept of breakout nations. And the last you know, like factor about breakout nations, which I think we need to pay uh, a lot of attention to is expectations. I think expectations are really key. So, you know, some people ask me that, listen, you don't cite the, you know, China as a breakout nation or even India as a breakout nation, even though you, you expect the growth rates will be okay, which is that if India grows at five, you know, like 6%, it's still growing much faster than the Western world. Or if China grows at 6%, even that's much faster. But to me, if India's growth rate, for example, has slowed down now to around 6%, and China's is now dipping below 8%. And the domestic mood in those countries is, is, is rather bleak. Not so much in China as yet, but definitely like in India. Like in India this morning, I was you know, watching a debate on television, and it was about the fact that is India, you know, like depression in India, question mark, because the growth rate is like slipping from the highs of 8 to 9%, and, and to this. So to me, expectations are key. And what makes a breakout nation is a country which is able to exceed expectations because that's what the politicians, the investors, the business community has come to expect. So if India grows at 5%, it may appear to be high, but for a country with a per capita income of only $1,500, that will feel like a mini depression back home. And I think the same thing with China, that China's economy, I think, has been a remarkable success. And the economy now is 
just maturing because it, it has grown like very quickly. One simple statistic here is that about 120 million Chinese moved from rural to urban areas over the past decade. The urbanization ratio in China now has reached 50%. And that's typically when things begin to slow down. So the like number that you expect now to move from urban to uh, from rural to urban areas over the coming decade is a fraction of what happened over the previous decade. So things naturally slow down because of those factors. But I think that what people forget is the fact that uh, is that economies tend to sort of slow down naturally. And yet, when you ask even people in, like in my community, the question like often asked is, will China have a hard landing? And how do they define a hard landing? 7% growth or less. So I think that's what's happened, that you know, expectations get inflated. And then when you uh, disappoint those expectations, um, it feels as if uh, like it'll be a real problem. And I think that that's what's happened as far as emerging markets is concerned. And that's how like, I try and talk about it, that, uh, that a decade ago, if I had to sell emerging markets, a lot of my colleagues tried to do, in the midst of the tech boom here in the US, they had to um, rechristen emerging markets as emerging markets to try and get some stardust from the US because nobody wanted to listen to that. By the middle of the decade, we were at a stage where every man and his dog could raise money for emerging markets. By the end of the decade, we were at a stage where just the dog would do. And I think that what's happening now is that we are once again reassessing ourselves and as capital flows have been slowing down to emerging markets, and that we have to now go back to distinguishing these emerging markets on an, on an like individual basis. When policymakers ask me that, you know, like what should we do? I'd say like, like for me, the closing line in the book and for me, the mantra is that when there is no wind, row, which is that you just cannot expect to sort of uh, converge with the developed world like you did over the past decade when money was really cheap and, and it was starting from a low base and catching up after the poor performance. Now each emerging market needs to reform and come up with their own sort of uh, agenda to try and catch up with the developed world. So that to me is the main outline uh, and the main argument of the book. I'm happy to take any questions after this. Thanks. Thanks very much, uh, Ruchir. It's my pleasure now to introduce Swami Iyer, a colleague of mine here at the Cato Institute. He's a research fellow at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. He's also a regular columnist at the Times of India and at the Economic Times in India. He has been a correspondent for The Economist magazine. He is the author of a book called uh, Escape from the Benevolent Zookeepers, which is a collection of his essays. And he is a very prominent and uh, frequent uh, commentator in the major media in India and in Asia. Please help me welcome Swami Iyer. Well, as you could, I'm sure you'd be convinced just by listening to Ruchir that this is a very readable book, uh, something that has all kinds of insights. It'll make you laugh and it'll make you wonder why you didn't think of some of those things earlier. Uh, I have to tell you that apart from being a merchant banker, Ruchir is a merchant banker who in India, whenever there's an election, he takes a band of journalists around with him. And we go into these areas, we watch all the election rallies, talk to guys, come back, and then we have a vote on how many votes is this party going to get, that party, who's going to win? And let me tell you that over the last 14 years, the guy who got it right most often 
was Roche Sharma. So I mean, this is a very, un he's not the typical 1% against whom the Occupy Wall Street guys are protesting. <laughs> Uh, there's much to agree with in this book. Uh, I mean, certainly I was with Ruchir saying that, you know, when we had this enormous boom of that last decade, that there was something utterly weird about it. I mean, I could see it was weird in a different way. We had a situation where the IMF, which is supposed to be the rescuer of bad economies, there were no bad economies left, so the IMF had no work to do. I mean, we'd got to a situation where the IMF was sacking staff left, right, and center, saying, you know, we have nobody to lend to. Why did you have nobody to lend to? Because the United States ran this enormous, huge deficit. Everybody else was in surplus. <laughs> so, I mean, it should have been obvious to somebody this cannot last. It should have, I mean, alarm bells should have been ringing out there. Uh, I was very clear that, you know, India's 9% was unsustainable. I said, well, even Africa has gone up from 2.5% to 6%. So for India to go up from 6 to 85 is really is no great deal. We are underperforming Africa. So, you know, when this whole thing came down, I was not surprised. Ruchir is not surprised. I would say, you know, you must remember Ruchir wrote this book a year ago almost. Had he made these predictions about the world slowing down, China slowing down, at that time, if it had come out, you know, it would have been much more controversial. In some sense, his problem is he's already been proved right. I mean, these, these countries have slowed down, the commodities have gone down, many things predicted already happening. It's very clear. Uh, he has covered a certain number of countries in his presentation. It seems to me he's left out some very important things which are in the book. Uh, and I think, you know, it's worth mentioning some of those. The most interesting prediction that he makes is that the two guys who are going to be the breakout nations, very important ones, are going to be Islamic democracies. On these, he has said specifically, Turkey and Indonesia are likely to be two countries that become breakout nations in the next few years. I mean, this is interesting, not just from an investment banker's point of view, but from the overall political system's point of view. I remember when Sam Huntington came out with his idea of clash of civilizations, I was among those who poo-pooed it. I said, you know, the problem with Sam Huntington, most guys, is that you just focus in the Middle East. Indonesia has more people than the entire Middle East. That's where the Muslims really are. So does Bangladesh has more Muslims than the entire Middle East. And so I said, you know, there is a huge area of much softer Islam. And if you just concentrate on the Middle East, you don't understand what Islam is. But I think what really happened was because the money was there, uh, the OPEC countries were rich. I mean, Bangladesh may have 150 million people, mostly Muslims, but they are poor. Indonesia had... 200 million, but they were too poor. So although the numbers were there, there was, in a sense, the economic success of the Middle East, especially Saudi Arabia and OPEC countries, it somehow put them into, into a leadership role in terms of the Islamic world, buttressed, of course, by the fact that the holy places uh, of Islam were in Saudi Arabia. That had a consequence. The consequence was that even in Bangladesh and Indonesia, women began to wear headscarves. And this didn't, never happened earlier through the centuries. But you found this, the, the rise of militant Islam beginning to have an effect on all the areas of soft Islam. If Ruchir is right, if you are now going to see a fall in commodity prices, the whole of OPEC is going to begin to shrink. He mentioned that Russia is going to be in budgetary trouble if the price of Brent crude follow, falls. Saudi Arabia will begin to get into trouble if the price falls below 80 or 70 dollars. So if Ruchir is right, we are going to have a situation where the oil producers in the Middle East 
those guys are going to shrink considerably within the Islamic world. The guys who are going to rise are going to be Turkey, which remains fundamentally secular, Indonesia, which remains fundamentally secular. If this happens, if there is this redistribution of power within the Islamic world, I think that would have extremely positive results, infinitely more than American adventures in Iraq or Afghanistan or any proposed adventure in Syria. Ruchir also says that two of the breakthrough countries he expects in Europe are the Czech Republic and Poland. Again, not countries that you would immediately think of, but he finds a large number of characteristics. They have done their reform, very different from other guys. They, uh, they don't have high fiscal deficits. They've become competitive. And these are the countries that may not have looked like outstanding guys in the past. They are going to do very well in the future. I think it is possible. I mean, earlier on, of course, you had the Baltics, which did very well briefly for a, for a time. And yes, Poland has got through the, uh, this great recession in pretty good shape. So is the Czech Republic. The reason why I think Russia may turn out to be wrong is the European banking system. The IMF came out just the other day with these data saying that after all that's happened, the European banking system is still so hugely excessively over-leveraged. It has to deleverage by $3 trillion. $3 trillion. Now, a lot of that money, as Richard will point out, is not necessarily loans by European banks to other Europeans. A lot of it is loans to Latin America, which is one more reason to be skeptical <laughs> about the future prospects of Brazil and, and Argentina. Uh, some problem. But this will significantly affect, I think, Eastern and Central Europe as well. So for this reason, uh, I think that, you know, Ruchir is very gung-ho on Poland and uh, the Czech Republic. I think they are in danger. You could, of course, argue that if the European banking system collapses, the whole world will be affected, not just a couple of East European countries. I would say that, you know, probably the ECB will rescue the banking system one way or the other. But nevertheless, that deleveraging is going to take place. So some of the potential guys perhaps will not actually benefit. Uh, Commodity price in general, I think he's right. There has been this huge boom where everything kept going up five, six times. Uh, it gave a sheen to Brazil. It gave a sheen to Argentina. It gave a sheen to Russia, which will not be repeated. But when Ruchi says that he thinks, you know, one good commodity decade followed by two bad ones, I think he's wrong there. Uh, and we have to get into specifics. The reason I think he's wrong is that what we have today is an attention to the environment and an environmental reluctance to allow mining, which has never been there in history before. I mean, in the old days, finding oil was something everybody wanted to do. And, you know, you would go to all kinds of areas to explore for oil. Here we have a United States which has banned all drilling on the East Coast and the West Coast. I mean, there are only three states in the continental America that allow drilling of oil at all offshore, which is Texas, Louisiana, Alabama. Everybody else says no. So now, you know, when the prices had gone up, there were now the large gas prospects, both on the East Coast and West Coast. And there was a proposal, okay, uh, we know that, you know, oil is polluting and guys are unwilling to drill because of pollution. But here are all the gas prospects. Let us at least drill for gas. And the incredible reaction you got was, yeah, you say you go for gas. How do you know you won't strike oil? I mean, for the first time in history, you got the business of striking oil as being a disaster. Uh, environmental objections to every kind of other mining have risen. 
If you want to open a new mine in many countries to get an environmental impact ass assessment and so on, it will take you two years, four years, five years. India itself has an example. India has the third largest coal reserves in the world. But because of problems, is this in a forest area, environmental area, tribal area, India has become one of the biggest importers of coal. I mean, I once had to write a column saying, does Kuwait import oil? Because it's the same. Kuwait had very large oil reserves, but it doesn't import oil. But India has massive coal reserves and we are importing coal because of the difficulties of environmental care. So this is true of, you should try to open a copper mine and many other kinds of mines. For this reason, I think commodities will be somewhat more resilient than Richard thinks, except I would agree with him that oil and gas, I mean, the discovery of shale oil and shale gas in the United States, that particular technology is actually a relatively simple technology. It can be replicated. There are enormous shale de deposits all over the world. China has the biggest of all, probably. I mean, China might conceivably once again become an exporter of hydrocarbons if it's really able to exploit all that. So the outlook for the OPEC countries, I would say, is not particularly good at all. On the other hand, if these commodities are going to be relatively constrained, you know, the prospects for large commodity importers like India and China perhaps are not quite as bad as Richard thinks. Uh, because, I mean, both India and China have had adverse terms of trade effect uh, with the rise in the commodity prices. That, I think, would not be quite so bad. Richard is pessimistic, especially about India, and I think I spent a, a, a little bit of time on that 50, since, 50, yeah. since we both are from India. I mean, he talks of India maybe doing only 5%, maybe doing only 6%. Look, you know, he's quite right in saying in India on the political scene, there is political paralysis, there is a reluctance to reform. Uh, many things have gone wrong at the same time. Yet, the same country, I mean, the Great Recession year of 2008-09, India did 6.9%. In the two subsequent years, India did 84 and 8.4%. Now, Richard is quite right, you know, now you have suddenly slipped down for one year to 69 I mean... Whatever were the fundamentals that created this growth, can they really disappear in a year or two? I don't think they can. Uh, Richard, again, I think was, is quite dismissive in the book about India's so-called demographic dividend. India is a country which used to have a problem which was called population explosion. Population explosion has now been renamed demographic dividend. There was a time when it was thought, you know, you've got too many guys. Now suddenly you say, wow, you have an expanding workforce. China, of course. Uh, solved the population boom under Mao by having a one-child policy. But China now is suddenly going to have a complete break. Uh, the population growth, especially the working group, the working age thing is going to rise very slowly and then it's actually going to decline. India, on the other hand, they say that the addition to, of people of working age is going to be maybe 300 million people next few years. But it's not just the numbers of people. The question is of the workforce of the guys in this particular age group, what percentage of them are actually members of the workforce? I mean, in the, in the, in the countries of the West, it's typically up to 70% of the people are in the workforce. The figure I've seen for China is 83%. India, believe it or not, is only 39 So, you know, it looks as though Chinese are doing much better. The Chinese are doing 12%, India is doing 8%. But China is doing 12% growth with 83% of the working age guys in the workforce, and India is doing it with only 39%. So in course, surely India will also go up from 39 to 60 or 70. I mean, one peculiar thing that's happened in India is that there's been a sudden collapse 
of female participation in the workforce. And the question is, why has this happened? Almost certainly, it is, I regret to say, our class values. All the working class people used to send their women out. But the moment you enter the middle class in India, you say, I don't send my women out to work. So as India has risen, people have been withdrawn, partly for education, girls much more in education, and to say, I am now lower middle class, I don't send my women out to work. Fortunately, the demographics show that as the women get more educated and they become school leavers and college leavers, then they re-enter the workforce in droves. So, I mean, I do see a very major benefit coming to India in the form of demography. That is a plus point. The other thing that Ruchir does touch on the book, there's the question of catch-up possibilities. If you've been doing very, very badly, your ability to grow fast and catch up for some time is quite high. India is not only a poor country. I mean, having if you miss the bus for 50 years, your chances of catching up really are quite high. And as he says, India is still only 1,700 per capita income, China 6,000. So we have these catch-up possibilities. But even within India, we have a large number of backward states which used to grow well below the national norm. And these were very large states. The state of Uttar Pradesh has 200 million people. I mean, had it been an independent country, it would have been one of the largest countries in the world. And this country used to grow at 3-4%. This state has begun to grow at 7%. The backward state of Bihar, which was regarded as beyond all redemption, has been growing at 11%. Orissa has been growing at 10%. India has a Maoist problem. In a large number of the jungle areas, uh, there's a Maoist rebellion, and the government's Officers basically can't even go there. This is seen to be a major problem in India. The biggest Maoist problem is in a state called Chhattisgarh, which is supposed to be really backward. It has, for the one decade, it has grown at 10%. So, you know, the catch-up possibilities of India's backward states with the advanced Indian states like Maharashtra and Gujarat is immense. So if you just have the backward states catching up to the existing level in much of India, that itself has a huge growth potential. So I do believe for these reasons, uh, India's prospects are somewhat better than what Ruchira says. Ruchira thinks five to six. If that's what Wall Street Journal thinks, I think India is quite a good bet for investment. Thanks.